Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Oxygen Star podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. <laughs> and with us as always is producer Doug. Good morning, Hi guys. Doug. Hey there, how's it going? It's going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going great. I, you know, I, one of the things I love about doing this with you guys of all the stuff we have to do remotely in our work lives and our personal lives. Now I really enjoy connecting with the two of you over the software from three different points in the Eastern Sierra. It, it does feel like a, it's nice to have a connection, right? It's nice. It's <laughs> nice also to kind of be casual in conversation instead of stuffy and meeting. meeting <laughs> I kind of like I kind of like the fact that you guys tease each other and, and you're giggling all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do best. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing to that point, Doug, is we should let our listeners know we use a software that doesn't involve video. It's just audio. So we can't see each other. So we can make faces. We can be in our pajamas. We can, you know, just relax. And that that's that makes it fun, too. The, the relaxed vibe yeah. about it all. Yeah. But and we hope listeners, we hope you're enjoying the banter as as well. <laughs> um but yeah, so we had a nice adventure yesterday, Christopher and I. And Christopher, why don't you start explaining what we did? Yeah, well you know, um so again, listeners, we record our episodes, you know, a couple weeks in advance. So we were planning um, to go snowshoeing, you yes. know, to have yet another snowshoe adventure and hopefully correct on our one from last year at this time. <laughs> um, but, you know, as we record this, uh, there's a disappointing lack of snow in snowshoeing areas around the Eastern Sierra where we are. So we just pivoted like we've all been doing. We've become expert at pivoting in 2020. And now in 2021, we applied that and we decided to go do some history trekking. Right, Stace? Yes. That's a really, maybe that's going to be a thing. History trekking. History trekking. Let's start that that term. I like that term. (laughs) So we went to find the Ragon tracks in Swall Meadows or just below Swall Meadows. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the area, um, where we are, the southern end of Mono County kind of intersects with Owens Valley. Owens Valley is the deepest valley in the continental U.S. because it has Mount Whitney on one side and the Whites on the other. Um, and at the northern end, it you rise about 3,000 feet to get up into the level of where Mono County is at Tom's Place and Crowley Lake where Stacy lives and all points beyond. Many of you are familiar with this. You drive a, a wide four-lane highway up 395, up that grade called Sherwin Grade to, to get into Mono County. Right. And to the, to the left, I always say to the left because I'm so used to commuting it in the morning to the <laughs> west of that grade is the old highway 395. One of them, 
that you can still drive. It's a windy two lane road that just has a lot of hairpin turns and kind of goes a little bit more scenically through lower Rock Creek Canyon, but you end up at the same place in Tom's place at the top, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, as white settlers were coming in to the area back in the 1860s and 70s, they had to get up and down that 3,000 feet elevation with um, with pack trains and with wagons, right? right? And so there were a variety of different roads that went up. There's a lot. There's information online about the Sherwin family who created some of the first roads, but you can still see some of the remnants of that activity today. If you, if you go out into those, those hills and those fields and see, especially where the freight trains went. So there was a lot of mining in the area, remember, which means you had to get mine ore and mine equipment up into the mountains and down again. And so there, you, you think of those 20 mule trains, you know, with the big wagons right. and the heavy wheels with, with metal around the edge of the wheels. Um, that's what they used to pull this heavy stuff up and down this grade back in the late 1800s. And what you can find today is where it went over the rock, which for geologists out there, <laughs> and a nod, nod to our resident partner geologist in Stacy's household, is Bishop Tuff which is kind of a volcanic rock, right, Stace? Yep. Yes, but softer, not as not as hard as some of the others. Right. And because it's so soft, those big heavy wagons created ruts in the rock, tracks. And in some cases those tracks are over a foot deep, and they're still there. You can go up and and see them. So, yeah, Stace, you yesterday you and I went out on a beautiful late afternoon. Um you know, the, the sun was out, it was kind of warm for a January day. And the, where we accessed it is there's a mountain bike trail that comes from Swall Meadows down to Paradise, which is the community at the bottom, near the bottom of the grade, it's still in Mono County. And that trail kind of parallels many of these rutted tracks. And it's very easy to get to. We just walked up and um, explored some of them and they go for quite a ways. Yeah, it was, it was, a well, it was, it was a beautiful afternoon and great to be outside. And yeah, it, it was really, it was cool to see how the, the tracks kind of intersect, you know, it's still embedded in the land and yeah, um, it was, and you know, when I earlier on an earlier podcast, I talked about um, John Fremont right and that was knowing that was an area that he, him and his crew came through at one point. Um, so probably when all of the mining was just starting, um, that you spoke of earlier and, you know, his team traveled with, with a wagon train and lots of stuff. So, you know, no doubt they crossed that area as they explored this part of California. Yeah. You really do get a sense of that history, right? Which, Um, it's still recent history. It's it's the West after all. And this was the era when, you know, white settlers were coming in and kind of impacting and displacing many of the indigenous tribe members in the area. You see old ranches, like just at the bottom there, the old Sherwin Ranch. Um, and you kind of get a feel for what had to happen to just live life <laughs> as a settler 
um, and a minor in in that time, and and you do it in a in a just a visually stunning way. You look south, you look down onto the valley floor. It's just an amazing view, and just to the west is are those amazing walls of granite that are Wheeler Ridge and Mount Tom and the Sierra right. crests behind them. So it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that view. I never get tired of of that view when you when you're driving down Lower Rock Creek Road to access the the tr- the road that Christopher was sharing about that we walked yesterday. You come to the the top of the rise, and it is the view of the whole valley is just so spectacular. It 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 takes my breath away every single time. Um, <laughs> I see it. It never gets old. It never does. And it gets, it's kind of humbling, right? Yeah. That's also what, one of the things I love about that drive, the old highway drive, which I will sometimes do as a commute mm-hmm. is it forces you to slow down. Yeah. You're not you know, concerned about the car ahead of you or the car passing you or anything like that. You're just slowly navigating really tight turns um, and steep drops and you, you just appreciate the surrounding more. Definitely. So, Definitely. So listeners, if you want to come and check it out, please remember to do so responsibly and let us know what you think. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, easy adventure. Definitely. Take a deep breath and we'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast. A colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners, to the B portion of our podcast, the book portion. All right, cheer. One, two, three. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, I hope if you're not driving, you've got a nice warm cup of tea or something in front of you so we can chat reading for a few moments on this cold winter day. And Stace, we read the same book this time. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I am too. You know, Stace and I map out what we're going to read for upcoming podcasts, and we decided early on that we wanted to read the National Book Award winner this year for 2020. And what happened in the National Book Awards this year was kind of a surprise, right? Yes. Um, I think there were odds were on a couple of other books, but this title, Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu, came out and took the, the top award for uh, adult fiction. Yeah, and and really out of left field, I think it surprised everybody. And you and you and Christopher, you and I were listening. We were zooming in to the the book award ceremony, if you will. Yeah, we each had our our glass of you know cheap champagne in our kitchen, and <laughs> you know we're right there with Lisa Lucas and all the people who were hosting the National Book Awards on their Zoom in the fall, which is normally a really swank event in a beautiful venue in Manhattan. Um, but this year, pandemic brought it online. So right. a lot more people could go in and watch it. And um, it was hosted by Jason Reynolds. And I think if you, listeners, if you're interested, you can probably still go back and, and view it because it's online. But Interior Chinatown, Stace, a short yes. second novel from Charles 
you, which kind of, you know, surprised me when I started reading it because I, it had come out last January. So Mm -hmm. about a year ago, and I didn't really quite know what to expect because it flew so far (laughs) under the radar. What did you think? Well, you know, I had done after it was given the award, I went and did some digging on what it was because I had never even heard of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw that it was written as a screenplay. Uh, in mm-hmm. the same way a screenplay is done. And then I saw that Charles Yu was, had been a television writer. Right. And I don't know if our listeners have ever seen the show West. I think it's called Westworld. Right. Um, which was kind of like a, a sci-fi cowboy <laughs> show mm-hmm. <laughs> plot line. And I, I, my husband and I had watched a few episodes of it. So I was intrigued and I was really excited to read it, but I, it, it took me a little bit of time and a conversation with you, Christopher, as I got into it to, to really embrace what it was. Yeah. You know, um, and I think the thing that kind of, intrigued both of us and probably intrigues many readers is that he did do it as kind of like a screenplay format. It's a novel, it's fiction, but it's written as if you're reading a screenplay and the format on the page looks just like that. Right. It almost makes it faster to read. Yeah. Because of the way it's written. Yeah. Sure. A lot less words on the page. Yeah. The other other thing, just to set it up a little bit about Charles Yu as well. He is a, he is a, a television writer he also has written for numerous publications, The Atlantic, New Yorker, all, all sorts of things like that. This is only his second novel. He is Chinese-American, second generation. He has a degree in biology and creative writing. He got in California, and then he went on to Columbia University to get a law degree and worked in corporate America before switching back to write for TV. So one of the things that is intriguing just about that is that he is um, kind of a uh, an exemplar of what he positions as the model minority, right? Which is how mm-hmm. Chinese and Asian Americans are often viewed in American society. You know, very diligent, hardworking parents really driving their kids to succeed. And then you end up with people who, you know, th- this writer has a degree in cellular biology and creative writing and a law degree. And Oh, by the way, is a successful TV writer. So, you know, that's kind of the, the, the context from which he departs this book. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and he, he's also kind of in that, you know, he's a middle-aged man. So he's taking care of aging parents. He has, Mm -hmm. he has kids that are, coming of age and and kind of questioning their own identity and you know he stated in an interview i think it was with the new york times that that's really where this book came from is that middle place right and so the way he structures it in this tv screenplay is in a cop show and so he kind of creates this world in which there's the leads in the show. There's a white woman detective and a black man detective. Mm-hmm. And then there are all the side characters, the people who play the goodies, the baddies, the people who get killed, all that sort of thing in any episode of a TV show. And very often those are quote Asian guys or Asian people. Um, and he uses that phrase, that generic 
Asian guy phrase repeatedly throughout the book as a way to say this is kind of how America views Asians, you know, kind of this bland, generic catch-all, even though it's one of the most, you know, Asian encompasses one of the most diverse group of cultures on the planet. Um, Right. You know, America, in TV at least, just kind of puts them in one bucket and they give them very specific roles. There's the beautiful Asian woman who's dressed in, you know, uh, a kimono kimono or a form-fitting Chinese um, dress or what have you, and very often standing behind the hostess station (laughs) at a Chinese restaurant with lots of ornate fake woodwork and what have you. And then, you know, Asian guy in the background of a cop show or who gets one or two lines in a cop show or who gets killed in a cop show or is the old wise Asian dude in a cop show or ultimately the goal for the protagonist in this novel who is called Willis, Willis Wu, um, his goal is to become Kung Fu guy um, where he's kind of like the Bruce Lee of, you know, Asian appearances in TV. And, and I and I loved I loved that I thought that was you know this is sat you know written in a very satirical way entirely and I love that how he did that that stratus right, right. <laughs> that described in that being the kung fu guy that was the highest level you could get to. Right. I kind of likened it to the corporate career ladder. Like you start at the bottom and you work your way up to, you know, CEO. Well, you know, in terms of, you know, side character actors and TV cop shows for Asians, the top you can become is Kung Fu guy. Right. (laughs) And, and there's this whole culture and group of, of character actors that, that are part of this, this book that fit within that. And, you know, they're at various different levels of it. And, um, you know, they all kind of, he has them all living in an SRO, a single room occupancy building, which is not uncommon in urban areas where, you know, you rent a room or you share a room and he has it so that this is like a multi-floor SRO building and each floor has different characters or different themes of, of people who live on that floor. Very Dante-esque if you've ever read it inferno or paradiso or anything like the different layers of hell or different layers of heaven this sro is kind of presented in that that way so he kind of sets this whole context of while there are the writers and the producers and the stars of the show there's this whole culture of people who are supporting actors character right. actors. and and as he moves through the story he goes from the actual plot of the various episodes and weaves into the Willis's own life. Yeah. So, And it's almost at times difficult to know, okay, is this in the show or is this in Willis's life? <laughs> um, but he, you know, it all comes together so creatively and so masterfully, it doesn't really matter. You're still getting the, the theme of the book. No, especially as you've gotten like into like the middle of the book and you've kind of gotten the rhythm of what it reads, what it means to read a TV script because you're learning that. Right. And once you start to kind of contextualize all the different characters that recur and, and, and the motivation of the protagonist, it really does. You said yesterday, Stace, it, it reads sparingly. He doesn't waste words. No, he doesn't. Um, and he, 
yeah, he has a, he's got just a great economy of language and um, you don't need, he didn't need three pages to describe the SRO. Right. You know, it was just, and it was so beautifully done. You could see a picture. Well, for me, I could really see in my mind what he was describing. Right. Right. And he also, because it's satire, he also, and he's a TV writer, he knows to bring in humor and within all of that and within that spare writing, he, he makes it funny. He makes it, Mm -hmm. you know, which in a way makes it approachable for people like myself or not Asian reading this, but who I could definitely understand what he was writing because I've watched any number of cop shows. And I remember Bruce Lee when I was a kid and all that kind of stuff. Um, he, he likes to poke fun at stuff. He pokes fun at the TV cop show genre. Um, and without giving anything away, because these things have been cited in reviews and, and writing about the book, he, he, he points out that, you know, if you're an Asian character actor, who's been killed in a TV episode, you can't work again for 45 days because someone may may remember your face, um, (laughs) which I thought was funny. And then also, um, he pokes fun at the, this trope of first generation Asian immigrants who have this unhealthy love of John Denver songs, <laughs> you know, so he describes, you know, the generation above them singing, you know, take me home country road at karaoke, that kind yeah. of stuff. That was great. Kind you of know like, what I, I kept thinking of the show law and order mm-hmm. when they were in the, the cop show scenes, because that, that show, I haven't watched it that much, but the ones I've seen kind of blend in the the cops and the murder and then mm-hmm. the courtroom. And that's mm-hmm. how, you know, this, this book goes. Yeah. And I, I'm never going to be able to watch a, a cop show like, you know, like this again, without thinking of this book, you know, well, it's, it's changed how I look at those shows. Yeah. And, you know, um, it made me think of something similar too. I kept thinking back to my childhood, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you know, Kojak and Hill street blues and all those, (laughs) right. Um, I'm dating myself. So (laughs) younger people, you'll have to Google those, but you know, it was exactly what Charles you describes in this novel, you know, Asian characters appeared from time to time and you could basically count the three actors that always played the role, one of whom was James Hong, who's you know, a very famous Asian character actor from the 70s and 80s, who I think was in every cop show of <laughs> the day. You know, he just every and everyone would recognize his face, but maybe not know his name, which I think is kind of the point of this book, right? Right. Yeah. And um, go on. Well I was going to say the other thing that he brings in just to a completely different flavor is um you know, there's a couple of chapters where he points out the history of yeah. um, the the national approach to immigration and legal barriers, specifically for Chinese immigrants, um, and how you know legislation in the 1800s and the early 1900s made it very, very, very difficult for Chinese people to emigrate to the U.S. if they weren't already right. here. If they were here working on railroads or digging mines, they were good, but um, you know, the quota is really limited further immigration. 
And those right. weren't really released until the 1960s, right? That's right. Yeah, and they had they had terrible um, restrictions placed upon them. They couldn't own land. They couldn't own a business. Didn't it? Didn't matter how much they contributed to society, they were marginalized to the nth degree. Right. Right. And he doesn't hammer that home. You're reading a novel and then you turn the page and there's just little sentences about each of those acts. Right. And you read them and you're like, oh, wow, this is the context in which he's living. And then you go back to the story and it, it, it brings you to a new perspective on what you're reading. Oh, definitely. And I, I, I was not aware of those, that those laws had been on the books and I was horrified. Right. Right, right. I mean, just so, so terribly discriminated against. Um, it just it boggled my mind. It was unbelievable. So, you know, it's another book kind of like The Night Watchman, which I talked about, you know, where I learned a little bit more about um, tribal history in the U.S. And then, you know, we've had other books. I think for me, this book ranks right up there with Kylie Reed's uh such a fun age that we talked about on that mm-hmm. episode a few months ago yeah. in terms of, you know, uh, a lens on, you know, how a minority views itself within the context of, of American culture today. I, I agree. And I, I really enjoyed this book is a great way to start off my reading for 2021. And um, yeah, it was a, a great learning experience too. And we should point out, you know, we, we talked about a lot of heavy topics here. It's in a very thin book written in a TV script format. I read it in a day. <laughs> so it's a short, short read. So you shouldn't, you know, feel like intimidated by the topic of this book. It's a great novel just on its own. That's why right. it won the National Book Award. Yeah, it, it's really enjoyable. And I, I recommend it highly. So that is Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Um, we have it at the libraries as well as, you know, your local booksellers. Support, support your local resources when you can. And take another sip of your warm tea or coffee, and we will be right back with our conversation. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, Adventure, Books and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the C conversation part of our show, and today we're so happy and honored to have with us Stuart Brown from the town of Mammoth Lakes. Stuart is the Intrepid Parks and Recreations Director and Public Information Officer and one of the busiest gentlemen in town these days. (laughs) So welcome, Stu, and thanks for giving us some time this morning. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the uh, invitation. Well, it's great to have you with us. And where we usually start out with our guests, I'll ask you, can you tell our listeners and us of how you got to, to Mono County? You are obviously not from the Bronx. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit further south, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is what people say. Um, 
But yeah, uh, you know, if you go back to, um, you know, my story um, kind of begins in the early 90s uh, when I retired from um, our Australian ski team. Uh, I spent um, about 10 plus years on the Australian ski team. Wow. And that's snow skiing, not water skiing, right? People have to clarify that. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, don't think, I don't think we've got a lot of snow in, um, in Australia. But uh, <laughs> amazingly, I mean, here's, you know, another little uh, fact for the listeners is uh, Australia actually has more skiable acreage than Switzerland. Wow. Wow. Um, but we only have uh, so much of it, about 1% or 2%, that the National Park Service actually lets us um, ski. Yeah. So it's, it sounds big. And ironically, I always kind of laugh. I mean, you know, in Australia, the, the ski fields and the, snow, uh, and the area is called the Snowy Mountains. And we, you know, we, we, get a, you know, we get a little bit of snow. It's okay. I mean, the season's short. But ironically, in Colorado, their main range is called the Rocky Mountains. You know, <laughs> I, I really think they, they got the kind of you know northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere cross going on there. But um, <laughs> but uh, no, I was I was really fortunate to be part of that team. Um, you know, traveled around the world. You know, raced. Um, you know, I got to World Cup level, which is great. Did World Championships, wow. Uh, wow. World, world Student Games out there in Czechoslovakia. Um, which was amazing in the in the eighties. There, um, you know, I was national slalom champion uh, a couple of times, wow. and I spent a bit of time as well uh, as uh, on our. Um, um, it's kind of the PSIA, but it's the Australian Professional Ski Instructors Association. So I spent uh, time with that organisation, and they have a big event called uh, Interski, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when uh, different uh, countries all get together. Um, it's almost like a big book club, right? But you know, you all get together. And um, mm-hmm. sorry, is my phone ringing? Um, and you basically um, uh, present your skiing kind of style, mythology, um, technical, um, you know, um, fundamentals t- um, to you know different ski instructors and and countries around the world. And uh, this was in Japan in um, 1995. So I was able wow. to spend some time over there. And anyway, so. Um, but it got to basically a point where, you know, 36 straight winters later, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just kind of looking to work in, you know, a warmer environment, one that had a, a longer season, you know, really looking for a place to call home, mm-hmm. um, preferably a place that, you know, spoke English, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or they could at least understand, you know, my strong Aussie accent at the time. Um, <laughs> and I, I grew up on the coast in Australia. So, you know, I was really looking for something that had kind of best of both worlds, you know. So it was, mm-hmm. it was certainly mm-hmm. the mountains in the ocean. And um, Mammoth was it. Um, in the end, I was recruited by John Armstrong, if you know John. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, Lynette works, you know, your library. Um, but John yeah. recruited yeah. me back in the day and um, to work for the world-famous race department at the time. And, uh, awesome. Truly honoured to come over and, uh, yeah, I've been here ever since. So there you go. So you were hired here as a ski instructor? I was actually hired as a race coach. Um, okay. It was interesting, you know, when you do – you've spent, you know, with any people, you know, whatever you've been, you know, solely focused on for, you know, a good period of time, you suddenly step off that or step out of that kind of environment and, um, you know, you're a little bit lost. And uh, so at the time, you know, after – Traveling around the world, I was kind of really looking, like I said, for a place to stay, and um, you know, Mammoth, Mammoth certainly was it. And uh, but I was, yeah, just employed as a. I think at the time, Stacy, I think it was kind of maybe I don't know, nine dollars or something an hour, you know, eight dollars, wow. you know, back in yeah. the day. And uh, 
you know, it's funny now, um, you look back and you go, and each year you got like this 50 cent increase. And um, <laughs> I think, I think when I finally finished, I, I did, you know, a lot of time at the race department. Then, you know, more recently in the last decade, you know, I joined the, the ski team and I kind of coached for a while. And I think I left at like $16 and 50 cents. And I was so proud, you know, that, <laughs> that like 20 years of work, you've, you almost got to like $20, but anyway, that's <laughs> so that was a little bit of an impetus at the time to obviously, you know, just look at some other opportunities that, you know, were, were at the time around, you know, uh, Mammoth and, and the town. So, yeah. Stuart, when you first moved here to take on that role, can you talk a little bit? Was there something that was like the most surprising or unexpected thing about living in Mammoth that you didn't expect when you were coming from basically the other side of the planet? Yeah, there's a lot of mammoth has a lot of snow. I mean, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think one time my wife picked me up and she took down a van. There was a few of us there, and um, it was we were late kind of getting our visas. You know, it was always about the H two B visa, and you never quite knew when it was going to happen. And uh, right. Hmm. Anyway, so one year it just it was really late, and um, you know we 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 arrived Christmas Eve uh, wow. at, at LAX. So uh, Julie, you know, picked us up. There was a few of us there, and in a big van and you know she said look you yeah, we've had a little bit of snow you know so be prepared you know no problem i mean <laughs> there's three feet of snow in the parking lot we couldn't even, <laughs> we couldn't even get out of the van you know so <laughs> you, you kind of just swum i mean you open the door you swum out of the van into the house and it's like oh my you know we're in, we're in, we're in flip-flops right you know so, uh, <laughs> That was uh, that was probably the most surprising and eye-opening, Stacey, I think. And the other one too was was fun, but also horrifying. Was um, uh, as a member of the race department, you're all a, you're almost like the jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you're not if you're not racing because you need you know good surfaces, you're either you know out there pulling um, you know um, either fences, you're picking up you know safety pads from the towers, and then mm-hmm. you know it also had an option, uh, you know, because it was you know, such a snowy area, it just it was amazing me that, um, you know, Mammoth got that much snow, but they said, look, you know, we, we could go for kind of days or weeks at a time without kind of coaching and working. So, you know, we kind of work on all these different departments and one of those is um, cat crew. And I'm like, cat oh. crew, well, that sounds fun. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, so yeah, so look, what you do is, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of sign up and, um, you know, meet at the garage there, at, you know, whatever in the morning, they'll call you to come up. And, um, I had, I didn't have a car, so I had to get lifts and all that type of stuff. But, uh-huh. but the training, I mean, here's the thing, right? The training at the time consisted of just going and driving with one of the other race department guys, you know, for one of the sessions, you know, it's like one, one day. And then the next day they're like, okay, here you go. You know, so here you are in a, <laughs> in a, you know, a PB piston bully 200. They just had packing, <laughs> packing bars, fortunately, not like the tillers on them, but, you know, I had the had the blade and everything, and um, you just basically drove around following each other. And um, I, <laughs> at the time, I had no idea where I was. And um, one of the things with with driving cats, you know, you, you can't really can't really see much. You don't really know where you are. And in, in driving in in deep snow, you can kind of hit the gas, and all the cat will do is actually keep sinking, like it won't climb. <laughs> Oh no! So I was trying to I was trying to go up this hill, and you know the guys, all the race department guys, it was a lot of fun. They say, uh, "Stu, lift your bar, lift your packing bar. You're digging a big hole." So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, anyway, so it was just a lot of those uh, a lot of those experiences back in the day that you know I was working at Mammoth, and uh, what an amazing place that you can you know uh, gain so much 
experience outside your typical kind of skill set or what you were employed to do and you became such a valuable member of a team right um not only your own department but the team as in the mountain so we all just worked um you know back in the day to do whatever we needed to get done to get that mountain open and safe and uh yeah, yeah just so many so many great fun memories yeah so there you go that's awesome that's awesome and then you made a transition to work for the town yeah so um it was funny so at the time, and it was kind of from driving around in cats and, um, you know, you're mm-hmm. like, well, I'd probably rather be skiing in it than, you know, driving in it, but that's okay. And then a lot of the time went past and said, well, what else is there, right? You know, um, what a great place, got to be some good opportunity. So kind of in the late 90s, um, I transitioned from coaching. Uh, I was employed then as kind of the first sports school kind of marketing manager. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And the sports school at the time was kind of the ski school. It was kind of the new kind of rebranded uh, name for a ski school we kind of wanted to broaden the appeal um you know so it wasn't just typically ski it was obviously at the time you know snowboarding was big and you had you know uh tele uh, tele you know tele's you know tele skiing as well we had nordic skiing so it was kind of this more encompassing um term for ski school so it was kind of this sports school so we kind of started that new branding which was great and then and then uh, Rob Perlman, you know, the marketing director at the time said, well, that's good, Stu, but we really need to kind of get you more broadly focused and helping kind of more of the uh, in-resort uh, businesses. So I kind of came mm-hmm. the in-resort slash hospitality marketing manager, did that for probably three or four years, and then transitioned um, into the village. You know, when we started the, the village right. down there, um, I worked with Kathleen there for a couple of years. And then um, left the ski area in about 2005, 2006, I think it was, and started with the foundation, um, Mammoth Lakes Foundation. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so I was the development manager and then director there um, with Evan Russell and working with Dave McCoy. And, I mean, what an honour, you know, to work with just that incredible uh, right. organisation, um, you know, cultural enrichment, you know, education, um, just doing wonderful things um, for our community. And it was it was good. It was enlightening at the time because, you know, after working with Dave for the mountain, now you had an opportunity to kind of work with Dave in a whole different kind of environment. Um, and, he, mm-hmm. you know, it's all about community, right? Community with a capital C. That was Dave. Right. And um, yep. so generous with his time. Um, so, anyway, I really enjoyed that period of time. And that's kind of when we were starting on the um, employee housing. Oh, sorry, the student housing. Um, okay. So I kind of did a lot of the pre-work, um, a lot of the research. And uh, at the time, I was also doing kind of this certificate in marketing from UC Berkeley. So I wanted to kind of, you know, figure out what I could do to kind of broaden my, um, you know, knowledge base, technical expertise in marketing and so forth. So anyway, so I was kind of, it was good because I was able to really use that as kind of a case study. So I kind of, been, I really enjoyed that. And then um, joined the town um, 14 years ago, basically, um, as the community relations manager. So, yeah. That's great. Um, and then, you know, obviously the last 14 years kind of went from that to recreation when we split up tourism. If you remember, they mm-hmm. they kind of yeah. bifurcated tourism and recreation. So uh, they kind of put me back over with the town uh, and then Dana and that team went off with, you know, Mammoth Lakes Tourism and, you know, that, that new kind of cycle. And then uh, I became the Parks and Recreation Director probably about three or four years ago, and then we took back uh, kind of park ma- parks maintenance um, mm-hmm. at the time. So it's it's kind of a – it's really what they kind of call that kind of typical core parks and recreation um, department. So, um, you know, we, we program so many things, we need to obviously be able to maintain them. So it was a real it's, – it's a kind of a synergistic relationship, right, with your parks maintenance, with your, with your mm-hmm. programmers to make sure we're delivering 
you know, the best experience we can for, for all our guests. So there you go. Yeah. So, you know, uh, oh, go ahead, Stace. Well, I was just going to ask what, so in your experience, Stu, here, what would be, what would you say are, are the biggest changes you've seen in the town? Uh, well, apart from, you know, clearly the, some buildings, Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think at the time the Western, you know, that was, uh, it was, you know, the intra West and Western and, and that was such a heady time, wasn't it for our community? Yes. Um, you know, and, uh, really exciting, you know, you know, Mammoth was kind of going from this, you know, uh, great backyard kind of, you know, what kind of Dave McCoy always called kind of the Sears of skiing, you know, um, to this real world-class, you know, um, four season, resort destination and uh i think you know it was a really big shift uh in our community and our our folks and our people and it was a real change you know because what we always noticed when i was kind of the community relations manager you know you kind of communicated engaged and connected with our community either the middle of winter or the middle of summer and uh most of the time you know we had some you know pretty decent spring you know because the season went long but Mm -hmm. you come into fall in October, right. November, it was like a ghost town, right? Everybody just kind right. of shut their business up and took off, and um, right. you know had had their time. It was real. It was a real different time, and I I appreciated that. You know, it was real quality of life. This is kind of why we moved here. You know, we all started kind of in this ski industry. There's kind of these ski bums trying to find your way, and you know, but people didn't want to kind of you know lose sight of that. I think that was really important for, mm-hmm. for people. And um, anyway, and that's and clearly fast forward now. Um, you know, it's truly uh year-round four season you know um town and community um so yeah so speaking of that that Stu, wearing your parks and rec hat for this question one of the things that impressed me when i returned to the area a couple years ago was just how much is going on in and around mammoth in terms of what your your department offers you know we should point out to our listeners you casually mentioned the student housing at saracoso a couple minutes ago, that's one of the few community colleges in on the West Coast that has student housing at all for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the town offers a wealth of stuff for people of all ages through your department. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, really proud. I mean, I'm so honored to work with just amazing people, you know, and that's what I've tried to do, you know, as a director and kind of leading our Parks Recreation Department, you know, just get good people, you know, give them direction, get out of the way and let them do their job, you know, and um, mm-hmm. that's kind of what we've got. We've just got incredible people um, truly passionate about making a difference in our community. So we kind of have uh, an internal, um, you know, um, saying tagline for us, you know, all recreation all the time. Um, and that's, you know, from ages one to 100, right? So when we're right. kind of looking at our programs, we look at that kind of diverse population, kind of break them down and really try to understand, you know, what each of those uh, demographics and segments and our community members are really looking for. You know, we're always, you know, when I started back in 210, kind of as that recreation manager, it was just all kind of summer camps. You know, we just did this kind of two months of summer camps and it was really from like ages, what, like seven to 12. Yeah. um, and really over this period of time, certainly this last decade, I've really tried to expand that, right? Um, you know, we, we added the mini camps, you know, so we looked at kind of these four and five-year-olds and then we tried to figure out, you know, what are these kind of older, young adults, teens really looking for, right? Um, you know, the youth kind of in our community, um, you know, so we started a lot of youth advisory committees and kind of really kind of dug into the school and got them involved thanks to, you know, Stacey and 
uh, MUSD, you know, so we try to really connect with those kids and then, you know, the adults and then uh, seniors and um, we have a very active community and, and it's not your atypical kind of uh, recreation kind of menu of offerings, right? We, um, they're all very active. So we're not one to offer a lot of the typical um, programs. We really see ourselves as this kind of high alpine parks and recreation kind of department. So that's kind of been our, our mantra, so to speak, is really to kind of look at connecting with, you know, ages one and a hundred and yeah. um, do everything we can. And, and honestly, really want to thank, you know, um, Dan, our town manager and council, you know, during, you know, we've had some pretty good times, you know, financially over the last four or five years, you know, obviously now it's very different, but um, we were able to invest um, back into our parks and our facilities with our deferred maintenance program. So right. we've invested probably about half a million dollars, which has been incredible, right? I don't think that's ever been, right. um, mm-hmm. you know, never been able to invest back in our parks and facilities, you know, um, since we incorporated in 84. So obviously a, a considerable list of deferred maintenance items, but we've been so fortunate to be able to uh, get in there and and make changes and improvements um, to public safety, um, you know, to our pools and our parks, um, our facilities. And um, I think, you know, your comment is that it's exactly, you know, we want to make sure if we're providing the programming, you know, we can stand up and be proud of the parks and facilities um, as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you all have done such a great job and, you know, from being a parent myself and having to find things for kids to do in the, in the summertime, you know, when I first got here, it was a, it was a challenge and you've, you've done a great job with your department to really expand those opportunities for, for kids in the summer. So, so with all that you do and all that you have on your plates, Stu, what do you like to do when you're not working? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, the first question should be when you're not working. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know. We've all been, uh, you know, so consumed, right? I mean, nine months, 43 weeks, you know, but who's counting? But um, <laughs> but, but it has. I mean, uh, what an amazing, you know, period of time, an amazing in a, you know, I think in a positive way. I think there's a lot of things we can learn, you know, from our, you know, experience managing a, a, a pandemic. I mean, clearly, mm-hmm. you know, once in a lifetime, you hope, experience, you know. Yeah. You right. plead that it's not going to happen again in our lifetime, but you just never know. But um, so anyway, so that's that's been you know certainly all consuming. But um, but I do make an effort, um, you know, each and every day to walk kind of my eight thousand steps. Um, you know, <laughs> and 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 again, it's been such a journey. I think in the nine months, you right because you're trying to seek that solace. You're trying to keep seek that renewal. You're just trying to seek that kind of decompression in a way of yeah. right. Just, the intense um, environment um, and the challenges that we've been experiencing. I mean, it's uh, it's really been difficult for all of us, right? Um, so walking in that simplistic way, you know, grab mm-hmm. grab my little dog and, uh, you know, get out there and walk. And, you know, I've walked on – I don't think I've ever walked so much, you know, clearly in, you know, a long time, you know, um, and walking in that many paths, mm-hmm. you know, around town, um, you know, I've got some little routines, that, you know, walking past, you know, like the rink, the library, you know, anyway, so you've got these different circuits going on. And, um, and at the time in July, I, I kind of got my hip replaced. So I, it's been kind of part of my, um, you know, recovery as well. So really, uh, yeah. really doing that. Um, summertime, um, you know, a lot of hiking, I think road biking, I, I like road biking a lot. E-bikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much fun can you have on two wheels? Right. I mean, they are, <laughs> they are. 
they are just a kick in the pants. I mean, uh, e-bikes, I mean, what a game changer. And um, anyway, so uh, e-bike as much as we can. Um, and swim, you know, um, Lake mm-hmm. Swim at June Lake, which is just beautiful. Talk about, you know, early morning solace and, uh, you know, yeah. just right. quite time June Lake in the morning, just you and you and some fishermen and some, you know, fish. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we, we're down at Whitmore Pool. Um, you know, we're so proud of Whitmore Pool. I mean, that pool, I couldn't believe when we did a lot of the research, it was built in 1939. Right believe it or not. And, uh, you know, you probably know, but it was, you know, full geothermal, like kind of Keo's pool. And, uh, over the time it's changed with the health and so forth. But, uh, anyway, just incredible, incredible facility down there. And then, um, wintertime, you know, it's been tough, right? I mean, we all want to kind of stay active in winter, you know, it's been tough without the gyms. Um, and then, um, and then I have a ski date pretty much every Sunday morning with, uh, with Julie at June mountain. So I head over there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That's great. What a, it is a great, you know, we, in our adventure discussion in this episode, we talked about uh, a little walk slash hike that we did just yesterday down by just past Swall Meadows. And this is such a beautiful place. You could, you know, you just, we're so lucky to be able to just walk out of our respective offices or homes and go for a good mind clearing, refreshing Yep. walk it you is. know we're really blessed in in that in that regard but yeah just walk out your door and uh mm-hmm. you're you're literally in nature you know yeah. um you know you walk around and so many times you'll see you know our deer and our kind of you know fall times when they're moving through the area we've got a bear that lives in our backyard <laughs> so we, we we see him wander around and um, it is just surreal, I think. And um, I think what it becomes more noticeable and more certainly distinct and more appreciative when you travel, right? You know, you head down and yeah. you're just sitting on the 405, right? Right. And you're mm-hmm. just looking at all the traffic, just an endless line of cars and vehicles. And then um, you just think, you know, it's okay. I know I'm going to be back home. And, and you just step out and step away from people, cars, and, you know, just, yeah, really just find yourself in kind of a beautiful Eastern Sierra. So, yeah. Right. You just exhale. Just, yeah, just breathe, right? Yeah. It's okay. It's all going to be good. Yes. Yeah. So Stu, we always ask our guests, Mm -hmm. what are you reading now? Cool. Well, um, I kind of thought about this a little bit. Um, So a little, a a little known fact, um, but I've been actually keeping records of every book I've read or listened to um, since 1985. Wow. Wow. Good for you. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. awesome. You should yeah. publish that. Yeah, it was <laughs> like, and I've kept this list that used to be kind of in a notebook and it used to be on pieces of paper. And no, obviously, you know, technology, it's in kind of an Excel spreadsheet. But, um, you know, 1985, I was still kind of traveling, you know, and you're just crisscrossing Europe, you're in vans, you're flying on planes. Um, and reading, you know, was really kind of my escape, you know, from the, 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 the challenges and perhaps the boredom of travel, you know. Right, um, right pressures of, you know, kind of ski racing. And, uh, you know, at the time, probably my very woefully deficient, you know, language skill, you know, um, you know, it's hard to communicate, you know, TV was, we watched a lot of, um, Knight Rider back in the day, right. If you remember that show, right. (laughs) And it was always, uh, it was always dubbed in, uh, in, in German, you know, and, uh, so anyway, you know, you did. I don't think you actually needed to understand uh, to follow the show a lot, but anyway. Um, 
But uh, but at the end of December, um, I had read 662 books. It was on my list. Wow. So probably, I don't know. I don't know if that's really a lot or a little, but I read about 20, 25 books a year. That's good. Um, yeah. yeah, also I rate them, you know, so I kind of give them a score out of 10. So, you know, when you're always looking at um, either when you're a library or you're on Amazon or looking for kind of Kindle books to read, you know, you kind of want to know, hey, yeah, that was that was a good author, I, you know, right. that was a good right. series, you know, it's let's look for or read another one in those ones. Um, right. But I read a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Wilbur Smith, you know, back in the day, that was a good sure. author. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of adventure stuff, mystery stuff, you know, Clive Cussler, Robert Ludlum. I mean, just a brilliant author. Right. Um, Jack Higgins, you know, uh, was good. Yep. Jeffrey Archer, Ken Pollitt. Good action. Um, oh. Action Yeah, yeah action yeah. books. And then um, most recently kind of James Rowland's kind of the Sigma mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Really cool, this uh, CJ Box, the Joe Pickett series, you know, a kind of a game warden out of uh, Montana. Right. And um, I don't know, you can kind of relate to that, you know, just – kind of in our more western rural kind mm-hmm. of area here and i like that because it was really simple it was almost like a conversation um you know not not huge subplots you're not bouncing around you know multiple characters it's just they got these four or five main characters and it's just it's a, just a great story you know you can really yeah. cj box's um latest yeah. long range is actually one of the most checked out books in mono county last mm. year so you're really? in good company there you go. Yeah, and I could I could see a lot of people relate to that. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, like you said, it's, it's it's a very easy read, right? You know, and they really yeah. draws you in, right? That's great listening or reading. You know, popping on your your DVD or through your car when you're driving around, and um, right. Yeah. So, um, but you know, certainly the last year, um, you know, just been trying to consume everything. I know we all have about you know COVID and. Uh, and um, it's been great because uh, Catherine, you know, she's she actually trans- transferred her major into public health. And, um, oh, good for her. <laughs> so we've been actually, which has been great, you know, in her senior year, she was doing kind of a lot of communication stuff with public health. So she'd send me all this stuff and I'd send her stuff. And um, just, yeah, just a great way to kind of explore and expand um, your knowledge and share kind of some um, knowledge with um, with your daughter and um, right. public health. Yeah. And, uh, it's uh, and I think when you have a topic like that is just so all-consuming, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it becomes very easy, and you become totally um, consumed and totally um, fixated, you know, on, mm-hmm. on what's going on. Like now with the mutating virus, I mean, you're, you're right. scouring everything right. you can to try and understand, right? You know, what what does that mean, and what does that mean for the vaccine, and um, how soon can we get people vaccinated? Can you actually? you know, not give people the second dose perhaps and just try and figure out how to get more people vaccinated as soon as you can. You know, so I'm just trying to, yeah, um, trying to just understand all that right now. But um, but I had a few books um, that kind of I scored a 10 out of 10. That all was right. kind of, um, it was called The Power of One by uh, Bryce Courtney. I don't know if you ever kind of read The Power of One. Um, okay. Was, okay. I read that in kind of 1985 and uh, just a incredibly um, – empowering book about a young young kid that grew up in South Africa with apartheid and everything and it was around 1939 the war was coming and and just how he kind of grew up and managed all that um and really kind of focused on himself um and um right a lot of you know prejudice at the time um you know but he learned through kind of you know the power of words power of transformation and um you know how to transform lives and make a change that was really good um Good to great. I think good to great. You know, I think everybody liked that book from, yep. um, you know, Jim Collins. I mean, that was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Um, Big education mm-hmm. book. 
Yeah, I think so, right? And it was really well researched, really well written. Um, and there's also one that he put out on um, um, nonprofits as well. I think social. I read that one too. That was really good. Um, and I like that. And then the other one was obviously the classic. You know, I, I think, and I encourage all my staff to read this one too, right? I mean, the the Dale Carnegie. You know, how to win friends and influence people. I mean, such right. a yeah, a, a timeless book. I mean, it was written in. Um, I was looking at it the other day. It was written first published in 1936. Yeah, that, that's almost yeah. a century old, that book, and it's still being read. Yeah, and I actually went and downloaded it the other day so I could listen to it when I, you know, walk around, you know, town and you just listen to kind of a chapter. Um, incredible, right? I yeah. mean, um, it first came out in, I think, a uh, book, and then I know my dad bought it as a cassette, so when we used to drive around, you know, up and down around our farm, you know, from kind of where I grew up in Wollongong, we, you know, put a cassette in and listened to that at a time. and um, right. Yeah. You know, so that's what a, you know, a lifetime generational book, right? You know, that um, yeah. time. Yeah, incredible. So um, anyway, so there you go. That was some of the. Those are know. great, great, great top 10 books. Yeah. So there you go. That was fun. Well, yeah. we will, we will put links to all of the, the books oh, and you. authors that you recommended in our show notes. So you listeners, go. you can check them out and. Um, Stu, with all the books that you read, if you haven't signed up for the Mono County Library's Reading Challenge, you should because oh. you will win. Uh. Thank you for the plug, Stace. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> and Stu, we appreciate you coming on the show with us today and chatting yeah, with us. It's been really great, and we know how busy you are. So thanks so much for taking no time to be with uh, us today. Pr- appreciate the invitation. Thank you for everything you're doing. And, yeah, reading is kind of a lifetime um, you know, a lifetime or, you know, an activity that will give you just lifetime pleasure and enjoy. And, um, I, yeah, I'm so thankful that I started reading when I did and, um, yeah, I passed that on to my daughter and, you know, and, uh, I know she's doing the same. So uh, thank you awesome. again. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely. It's, it's listeners. Of course we promote reading on this podcast is a major thing and it really is a good behavior to get into while you're young. You'll be more successful and content in life. There are numerous, numerous studies about this and Stu is a case in point here. Um, so yeah, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of the oxygen starved podcast, adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet. You will find all the titles and links to some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast on our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. Please follow us on Instagram, O2Starve. That's also our Facebook account. And you can leave comment or ask us questions. We will respond. Or you can suggest titles for us to read as well. In the meantime, happy 2021. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Starve. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. 